0: Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Godstone Scale podcast. I am your host, Sean Clark, and this is the podcast where big things come in small packages. Recently voted, the most popular 6 mil historical wargaming podcast by members of my own household. I look to bring you voices from the hobby, some familiar, some not so familiar, but all with something interesting to say about this wonderful hobby of ours. This episode continues my swing across the United States as I chat to three familiar faces for anyone who watches Little Wars TV. We have Tony, Ed and Miles, all of whom are regular contributors to the Little Wars channel. It is a typical God's Own Scale episode where... I set the ball rolling with the intention to stick to certain topics, but we end up wandering all over the place. I love it when these chats take on a life of their own and grow into something unexpected. I'm sure you'll enjoy it too. I thank all three of my guests for giving up their time to participate. Out of interest, I read a post on a well-known wargaming news platform this morning regarding podcast length. Uh, The original poster said that he struggled to listen to podcasts much over 30 minutes in length. And there did seem to be some support for this, saying that uh, podcasts over 30 minutes were just too long. Um, Typically, my episodes will run between an hour and 30 minutes, up to two hours, occasionally over two hours. And I've not had any feedback suggesting these are too long. I have lost a few patrons uh, over the last month or so. Uh, Not suggesting this is related, but I thought I'd just throw the question out there and ask for a bit of feedback uh, from those of you who listen, still listen, um, and and ask your opinion. What do you prefer? What's the preferred length? Uh, Is it less than an hour? Is it between one and two hours? Or, Or don't you care? Will you just listen? however long the podcast is. I'm not saying that I'll be changing, but I am genuinely interested in people's opinions on this. Hobby news? Well, we continue to head towards the lifting of lockdown with a promise that by the end of June, all social restrictions will be lifted. and There's a hope that shows will begin to return. What the appetite of both gamers and traders will be to get together in the close confines of a show hall remains to be seen, only time will tell, but the light is there at the end of the tunnel. Um, hobby news, uh, we have Andy at Herrokes and Ross has released some news on his website that things are gradually returning to some normality as far as production is concerned for heroics and Ross. Ranges remain limited for the time being to post-1914, But do give Andy a call for an update on the current situation and and what's available. He's also released what looked to be a splendid range of World War II Italian paratroopers. There's 18 codes in all, so a very comprehensive list of figures for you World War II aficionados out there. As always, check out the Heroics and Ross website at heroicsandross.com and uh, their Facebook page for... More up-to-date news on what's happening at Heroics and Ross. Backers continue to tease us with more World War Two releases and Pony War releases. The World War Two stuff is just gorgeous and I can't wait to see some of this new stuff in the flesh. Peter says on the website they have around 200 vehicles in various stages of production and that alongside the British and German forces, the US are now mostly complete in Master form, at least, and a start has been made on the Russians as well. For those of you looking towards the Eastern Front, Uh, and on top of that, we've got pictures of the new train for the Pony Wars range, which has to be seen to be believed. There's a painted up version of it, and it looks superb. Can't wait to see that in the flesh either. Uh, So, as ever, check out Bacchus at their website and uh, their updates across social media, including Twitter and Facebook. A regular, I've released uh, a 6mm Siege set, which includes bolt throwers, bombards, organ gu- guns, mantlets, and battering rams, clearly designed for the earlier periods of history, uh, but it does add to the huge variety of items that we can use to fill out our gaming tables, and often con- includes things we never knew we needed, but upon seeing it, we can't do without. I'm sure we've all been there. I think I mentioned last time how pleased I was with the figures I received from Rapier Miniatures uh, from their American Civil War range. I bought some just for a bit of variety in my artillery crews, if nothing else. Uh, This has led me to check out more of their 6mm range, which uh, covers Ancients and Fantasy and there's a Gloranthan range for you RuneQuest fans out there, but... My eye was certainly caught by their classical ancients range and in particular the Carthaginians as the idea of uh, doing Trebia using Age of Hannibal continues to linger at the back of my mind and who knows that might be something that develops a little bit more as the year progresses. Uh, And of course the Adler American Civil War figures that I picked up I think it was prior to Christmas, uh, mainly for their general personality figures for my and game, they've painted up absolutely beautifully, really pleased with those, so I'll certainly be returning to Adler at some point in the future. And whilst on this tour of 6 mil manufacturers, I have to mention Grumbler Miniatures, who came to my attention before Christmas with their range of 6 mil Napoleonics, check out their website because that range is growing at a pace and I've also noticed a hint of some 6 mil American Civil War on the way as well so even more variety out there for the uh, Civil War gamer. I'm really hoping to get someone from Grumbler from Grumbler onto the show in the near future so do watch this space. Uh, lots going on I hope everybody's safe and well out there. Um, I'll do a little bit of my hobby news at the end of the show and also an exciting development on my listener in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But that's enough of me rambling on. You're here for the interview. So without further ado, let's
1: talk about Six. Madame from Mademoiselle from sav to you Sing it with all your heart and soul and see everyone right up the hall. Mademoiselle
0: from Armandia. I've got uh quite a, a room full of people uh to talk to tonight and they're going to be familiar names uh and they would be familiar faces if this was a video show, but it's not. But uh I've got three guys from Little Wars TV. Um my favourite YouTube channel, and I'm sure it's almost everybody's out there's uh, favourite YouTube channel, but I've got Tony, Ed and Miles from Little Wars TV. Hi guys, how are you?
1: Hello, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> woo <Woo-hoo! laughs>
0: it. We got it going, we got it going. This is uh, my second time having um, uh, three guests on the show, the first being the Christmas show, and that was pretty chaotic. And there's certainly drink involved uh, on the part of at least two of those, so I don't know if anybody there uh, over, over the pond has got anything um, nice and relaxing to, to drink tonight. Good. <laughs> good. <laughs> That's the best excuse anyone can ever come up with, never be denied it. Um, thank you gentlemen for joining me. Um, as a, uh, This is no secret because I've talked about it many times and I've spoke to Greg Greg a couple of times and Steve previously that Little Wars TV is my favourite viewing on the television, actually. It's it's way better than most of the stuff I get to watch on a a normal night. In fact, I prefer to watch it than most of the crap that gets put out on British television. But um, as is traditional, uh, on the show when I, I get new people on that. i like to find uh, out a bit more about the people that I'm speaking to and just finding out what the background and hobby biography is. So, um, Tony, I wonder if we can start with you, please. Uh, just give us a bit of your hobby background,
2: please. Oh, certainly. Um as one of the three oldest people in our club, and all three of them are here tonight, uh, I've been doing this for a while. I started with Avalon Hills, Panzer Blitz, and Midway in the mid '70s when I was probably 11, um, and I've been doing it for uh, 40, couple of few, 40 few years since then.
0: That's an impressive history. <laughs> <laughs> So for once, I'm I'm I may be I'm I'm taking a stab in the dark, but I may be the youngest on the call, and I don't think that's happened for a while. <laughs> uh, so uh, you, you started out in the board game business, then, but how, how did you migrate into
1: miniature games?
2: Well, I started with board games. Um, I fell in with Dungeons and Dragons, and there was a hobby shop in York. I painted some figures for that. There was a hobby shop in York, um, the ordered line, Ed will remember it, of course, Um, and they had such a fantastic collection of historical miniatures, and there was an old wargaming magazine here in the States I don't remember the I don't remember the exact title. It was Gene McCoy who published it, but they sold miniature wargaming units out of the back of the magazine. And I saved up some money from birthdays and whatnot, and I bought some micro armor because that was the least expensive scale in which to get an army started. And that would have been I I don't know late seventies, um you know as a adolescent I'd have been 14 or so i was like oh look at me i've I've got this little package of ghq tanks that i'm gonna paint horribly with some oil-based enamels blobbed on and you know no sense of what i was doing and a copy of the Angriff rules um zimmerman i believe world war ii uh, micro armor rules
1: yeah not heard of those actually Make a note of that. So,
0: um, was there a club local to yourself?
2: Um, There was a club doing board war games. There was a club doing some role playing games, and um, there were a couple of hobby shops. But the ordered line was the only one that really had some gaming space, and it was tiny. The whole place couldn't have been more than. 15 feet on a side, including the gaming space. And there'd be a bunch of guys crammed into this little corner, all huddled over a table, pushing around some micro-armor. Um, GDW's TAC Force was the big modern rule set at the time, so that was hot. Um, they were doing some Napoleonic's Empire, probably. And just to go in there and peer around the corner into this little space and, hey, how you doing, and watch guys push lead around on a on a table was that was a thing that I thought to myself, Hey, I got to do this too.
0: Yeah. It's remarkable, isn't it? But I think it's a common experience the world over that, um, you know, you, you're talking about GHQ there and, and, and G did games design workshop, I think, wasn't it? And th- these sort of things that, that they're, they're a commonality ac- across the hobby. That's people of a certain age, uh, Will be familiar with certainly the Dungeons and Dragons routine, and then, um, and, and this was my experience as a, as a kid that uh, looking at the Heroics and Ross uh, catalog in Military Modeling Magazine we had in the UK, uh, this huge list of very strange numbers and letters that combined to make up a, a German tank. And, and it was quite exotic to me as a, a kid thinking that I could buy three of these tanks for about i have sent 50, 60 pence. Um, I was something back in the day, I was thinking, oh, this is this is a route in, and then when I finally saw some guys doing it for real, then this, you know, selling my soul to the devil, really. And that was 30 odd years ago, so it's a common route. Uh, Ed, uh, how about yourself? Okay, you asked for it. <laughs> I've got my feet up, I've got my up. Yep homicide,
3: and mightily bored you'll be. My involvement with miniature wargaming spans seven decades, and it's tethered to my love of military history. And that began at exactly 9 p.m. on November 27, 1969, when my parents took me to see the Battle of Britain. I was eight years old. I was spellbound. That movie had everything. Lift off of baddies and RAF heroes fighting a desperate struggle against overwhelming odds. And the planes, they were all real, or most of them. And I'd just fell in love with the Spitfire. Being on the 8th and not at all familiar with the battle, I was on the edge of my seat and unsure how it would turn out. Spoiler alert, the good guys win. Anyway, the, the very next day, I pestered my parents into taking me to the library where I stocked up on World War II books and then on to the local hobby shop where they bought me Bachman Mini Spitfire and ME-109. And I swear, fellas, I gamed with them. A 6 on a D6 meant you hit, and then you rolled again for hit points of damage. Now, I was gaming solitaire, and I cheated a good bit, typically giving the RAF a do-over any time it was needed. Uh, This seemingly bizarre playtime did not go unnoticed by my parents, and on Christmas Day I received a copy of How to Play War Games in Miniature. I used those rules to game with my growing armies of air soldiers and Rocco mini-tanks for the next five years or so. I even found a few like-minded kids to play with. And I was building a firm foundation in British military history through movies and TV. Uh, films like Zulu, Waterloo, Sink of Bismarck, Gunga Den, I'm getting on a roll, The Four Feathers, the 39 version, of course, Bridge on the River Kwai, The Cruel Sea, Lawrence, Arabia, and... I think it was Saturday nights you could watch the world at war. I cheered on Harry Flashman and George MacDonald Fraser. I had become an Anglophile by Jingo. I met the two loves of my life in high school, the girl I later married and GHQ Micro Armor. the war, I played with toy soldiers, and while I'm quite sure she sees it as just about the silliest thing imaginable, she's very tolerant of it. I'm a lucky guy. My introduction to MicroArmor, that happened because of the generosity of local gamers Charlie Potter and Bill Strickler. Charlie ran that shop that Tony just spoke about. They put on a what you would call a participation game at the public library. I played and was hooked. The rules were Angriff second edition, just like Tony said, with a bit of traptics thrown in. And Charlie also introduced me to other periods of gaming, such as ECW, Napoleonics, ACW, Ancients, and Colonials. And I owe a lot to those old friends. And by this time, I had a car, and and I could go to HMGS shows. I always enjoyed painting figures, so I entered the competitions there. I enjoyed good luck winning some awards and and made new friends who can paint rings around me. Uh, Paul Bernardino, Bill Rutherford, John Dye. My favorite set of rules was and remains command decision by Frank Chadwick. Uh, when I saw that a fellow named Mike Montemorano was going to put on a big command decision game at Historic Con 90, I contacted him and ended up giving the British command. Apparently, that's how it's done. What a great time that was. I made new friends, uh, Soviet Commander Mitch and British players Dudley and JT. And the 90s were a wonderful time for gaming for me. I had a regular group even got my 10-year-old son involved. He didn't follow me into the hobby, but he does amazing work with 1-6 scale action figures, so that's in the ballpark. My one regret is not getting my daughter involved. She wanted to paint horses, but we never did. It wasn't because I was sexist. It was because I'm awful at painting horses and still am. Gaming slowed down in the 2000s and 10s for me. In retrospect, it wouldn't have if I hadn't been such a snob. I prided myself on being a historical miniatures gamer who looked down his nose at fantasy gaming. Had I but gone into a local comic book shop where Army Group York was being born, I'd had another great 15 years of gaming. But no, I wasn't going to be seen in a comic book shop. I think it was my wife who pointed out that no matter what I thought, to the general public, we were all about the same, and that the authorities probably would be well served to drop a net over the lot of us. Finally, in 2015, I made contact with Army Group York, and they invited me to their new gaming club, and I was accepted as a member. In fact, it was Tony that brought me in. Thanks to my friends at Army Group York, I've never had so much fun, and it comes at a particularly welcome time in my life. For As you can probably tell from those Little Wars TV appearances, I have Parkinson's disease. It'll be a sad day when I can no longer paint, but until then, I'm working through my mountain of unpainted lead, and a growing pile of 3D-printed stuff given to me by my generous friend Mike Miller. And frankly, I think my shaking hand has improved my dry-brushing skills. I want to set the record straight on the Trafalgar episode. As that scenario began, Signal 16 was flying. Engage the enemy more closely. Dear listeners, that's not a suggestion. It's an order. Not when to end up with the unfortunate Admiral Bing. I went right at the enemy. I don't think I could have done anything else. I'll never forget Steve's epic Zulu war game. I'm so grateful to him for offering me the main British command in that episode. He said he did it because it was obvious I'd been preparing for that for all my life. Knowing what you now know about me, how could I argue with that? The end.
0: I feel like I should stand up and applaud. (laughs) That that is incredible. Wow. Thanks for that, Ed. And that—that's completely just off the top of your head. That's right. brilliant.
1: That is excellent.
0: Oh my life! That is the best. <laughs>
1: <That> <laughs> is good, good head.
0: <laughs> Thanks for that, Ed. Yeah, that. And again, you know, a lot of what you've said there resonates with me. The Battle of Britain is just such a fantastic film, isn't it?
3: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes it was I can remember it like it was yesterday well obviously I remembered it I did look it up in the family diary but, but I had it right
0: <laughs> really <Yes. laughs> that's pretty specific isn't it now I can remember being taken to see A Bridge Too Far by my dad um, when that was released I think
3: now that is Tom's one of his favourite films that was influential on in him
0: oh what a great movie though yeah, Bridge Too Far. Oh my goodness, I, I think I've I've got the same connection to that film as it sounds like you have to Battle Britain, Ed, because um, it was the, it was my first memory of going to the cinema. Um, I'm guessing it was late seventies, wasn't it? Was it seventy seven, seventy eight, something like that? Somewhere um, around there. Yeah, and I can remember as the lights dimmed down, my dad leaning over to me and saying, "Now remember." The British do not win. Um, <laughs> i sat there in complete fear of what I was about to see, but I was completely blown away by the by the whole thing. And uh, it, as most British people have have, we have an affinity with the Battle of Britain, but also uh, the Arnhem campaign, um, and and that film has a lot to do with it. So. But yeah, the Battle of Britain's one is certainly up there. On it's probably in my top five. All-time favorite. Sure. Film. What Waterloo little spectacular to see at the theater too on the big screen. Yeah, that, that's something that was denied me. I was, I was just slightly, off, um, slightly too early for me. But if I ever got the chance to do that again, and apparently there's a, I mean this now this may be a, an urban myth, but apparently there's <laughs> a, a cut of that film out there that has got an extra hour or two of footage in it.
3: Everybody's heard that story, and and. I, I've, I've
0: yet to see it, but yeah, I keep hoping, yeah, you never know, you never know. thanks for uh, that ed that, that's fantastic.
2: And before it slips my mind, Ed's um, love of all things English, if we at the club were to do a war game with the English on one side, regardless of period, Ed could show up with an appropriate uniform. Whether it's an admiral or a field marshal, um, air vice marshal, Ed has a uniform. Well,
3: thank you very much, Tony.
2: I I love that. You wear
0: it well.
3: (laughs) Well, I watch Colonel Blimp, too, you know.
0: (laughs) Uh, I don't know if ever you were regressed and and taken back to a previous life, but you've you've (laughs) seen that, uh, that air of the English gentleman around around
1: you <laughs> I'll see on the videos. <laughs> uh, Miles.
4: Well, I, I, I certainly, it's it's hard to kind of follow up with, with Ed, so I'm just going to be really quick. Like, like Tony and Ed, I, I got into war gaming in the 70s as, as a kid growing up in Biola Battery, Alabama, uh, which is in the American deep south. you go any further south, your feet get wet. Uh, and my first experience was getting my parents to get me a subscription to Strategy and Tactics Magazine. Um, and and then, you know, I went off to college and work and all that and and went away. And then we had our son and and when he was, you know, early, early teens, he wanted to try this thing called, uh, uh, 40K. And I said, hell, I'll go along with you too. Uh, he lasted about six months. I really liked it, but it was kind of creepy. This old guy in the GW shop playing with the teenagers. So I kind of decided Maybe I'll try something else. And I went into the staying world of historical wargaming and, uh, started with Flames of War and, uh, I have, have expanded ever since. And, and I'm actually a latecomer to the club. Of the three people here, I'm, I'm probably the, the, newest member, uh, in 2018, uh, when they, when they had, when they lowered their standards for a while and they let me slip in. Uh, they've since revised that. So, so that, that can't happen again. Um, but
1: prior to that,
4: most of my, my gaming contact, you know, came through the internet. I started a blog and I, I, I established a bunch of friendships around the globe with similar gamers. And for me, a lot of my gaming was virtual, uh, and, and, until I, I, I was lucky enough to, to stumble upon the club. Uh, they will never put club advertisements above urinals at HMGS events ever again,
2: uh, on the, the draw they got. They specifically told us not to do that anymore.
1: Well, that was Steve's idea. Yeah, and, and I do have I do have a bridge too far uh, uh, story.
4: Um, where where I, I saw that movie when it came out in the theaters, also in the early seventies. It was also the first time I took a girl to a movie. My first date. With Annie met her. Uh, Annie chose not to go out with me ever again after I subjected her to a three-hour
1: war movie.
0: <laughs> did you tell her that the British lost as well? Did
4: you uh, she didn't really care. Uh, after about 15 minutes, I was pretty sure that, you know, she was
1: hoping the theatre would burn down. <laughs> Wow! Wow! Yeah, that,
0: that, that's that's uh, a that's a different take <laughs> on the film. Certainly, I don't think it'd be my first choice as a, a first date movie. But yeah, but
1: yeah. well, you know, uh, you, know
0: you, well, the- you wanted to see the film, you know, yeah. <laughs> got to see it somehow. Uh, that's that's great, gents. I mean, uh, and I, I have said this before, but uh, War Game is the world over. I've, I've got this real commonality, I and mean, we've got the shared experience of how we get into the game, and it, it doesn't matter what corner of the world you're from. Um, I think if you put two wargamers who've never met at a bar with a nice drink, probably a whiskey in your case, uh, from your club, then you, you'll be talking for hours, won't you?
4: It is a, an amazing kind of uh, leveling factor where you can have people with lots of different backgrounds, yet we share this rather arcane love of a hobby that that you can talk about for hours Um, and everybody's equal I I, I find it a wonderful experience
3: with the possible exception that I have absolutely no understanding of fantasy nor do I particularly care to I thought I was playing in Dungeons and Dragons the other day and Miles told me I
1: wasn't so (laughs) that that game of Steve's oh the Hobbit game oh yeah It was close to Dungeons
4: the dragon's head, but we won't tell anybody. Your street cred is good
3: with us. Well, I was doing it to be polite. Steve was so excited about it; it's just not my cup of tea. That's all.
0: Uh-huh. There's, a, there's a real division, isn't there? I, think, I, I mean, I, it's no secret that I do enjoy uh, the the more fantastical sides of the hobby, as well as the historical. Certainly, I'm in, in it for the history mainly. Uh, it's my main driver. But uh, yeah, I've I've got quite an eclectic taste. So Tony, you did some D and D. Have you have you ever have you done much fantasy or sci fi gaming since then?
2: Um, I I ran D and D from oh probably 1980 to about 1996, and then I took a break, um, on account of uh, divorce and somebody else got the house. You know how that goes. Um, or maybe you know, it's hard to say. But I took a break for a while. I did some medieval reenactment, and that kind of got my fantasy fix for me. But in the last couple of years, I've started up again with some of the members of the club, um, hush-hush on the weekends, because we can't be seen going in and out of the place talking about elves and dwarves and wearing wizard hats on a Monday night. That would just be bad form. Uh, Oh, and Ed, if it's any help for you... Hobbit was written by an Englishman. Just <laughs> just chucking that out there. Um,
1: I, I understand, yeah. I
3: just can't wade through that. Nope, can't do it.
0: We're a strange bunch. <laughs> yep.
2: But yeah, I am currently running um, uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. What well, was supposed to be a one-off thing that's kind of turned into a really loose sort of Maybe campaign linked series of adventures, as it were.
0: Okay, is that fifth edition, or
4: are you old oh, school? Oh, bite your tongue, sir! Uh,
2: <laughs> oh, my goodness! No, <laughs> uh, oh, don't go there, John.
1: Sorry,
4: sorry. Oh no, it's
2: too late. I've already got my soapbox. Um, no, I am old school enough that I never bought unearthed arcana or anything that came after that. Um, Folio was the last D&D that I, that I purchased new. Um, I'm currently running, um, Frog God Games Swords and Wizardry, which is, um, a well-produced and legible version of the original three D&D books in the white box and the original three or four supplements that went with that. Wow,
0: I, what was that again,
2: sir? I'll just make a note of that. What's the name of it? Swords and Wizardry, uh, Swords and Wizardry Complete, and it's put out by Frog God Games. They're they're a great company. Um, I've got some friends who have uh, worked with them at conventions and stuff, and dealt with them um, personally, and I've I've chatted with them via email and text and chat whatnot and it's a good group of guys and they produce a good product
0: yeah i'll check that out i've 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 got all the old um first edition ad and d books including unearthed arcana i'm afraid and the, the second monster manual etc but uh yeah I'll, I'll check those out definitely so no um but no sort of tabletop wargaming as such in the in the
2: fantasy genre um I haven't we've we've dabbled a little bit with doing some middle earth like ten millimeter middle earth mass battle things and I think the thing there that's holding us up is that we haven't found a set of rules that you know when you find the right set of rules. Everybody at the table says, Oh, oh that was awesome. Um and most of us, Ed being the exception, are Middle Earth fans, fans of, of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and and lovers of Middle Earth, but finding that set of rules that that captures that and we played a number of sets that were like oh that was a good bloody combat, but it just didn't have that certain feel. And let's yeah. face it, it's totally subjective, but we all know it when we see it. Yes, yeah. I think I think
4: we tried a few games of Oathmark and and they were okay. And um, I I Steve has Steve's got a fairly large kind of Middle Earth collection. I, I don't think we're despite Ed's uh, disapproving look, as I'm sure he's frowning as I speak. Um, Correct. I, I think you know we there's not a prohibition about it at the club. It's just something that uh, we haven't, as Tony said, we haven't found the one that scratches the itch, and when we do it. We'll all have armies, and, and you'll see a lot more of it uh, until that, you know, waxes over the head with a baseball bat and
2: we come back to it I will say this. Last Monday night when I arrived, there was a game that looked remarkably like 40K going on. That's all I'm going to say about the subject.
3: I thought it was disturbing as well, Tony. <laughs>
2: Does Greg know? That's the thing. Yes, there. Greg knows because he was one of the participants. No. Oh yes. <laughs> Apparently, oh, the, out of the now. Forty <laughs> K was Greg's gateway into miniature wargaming, and it was for a lot of, for his generation. That was that was the gateway to miniature gaming.
4: I, I think it still is the gateway.
2: Uh, it, it, oh, it, it, quite, it, it quite well be. Um, yeah, it may be. I just let's face it. I've passed that gateway uh, ages ago. Yeah. Well,
4: that's how, that's how I got back into the hobby. And, and you know, if you look at the uh, the survey data from WSS, just about everyone who is under forty, you know, they have played forty k at one time or another.
3: Well, I remember when Gary Gygax did historical miniatures.
4: And he didn't make any money yet, so he moved on. Right. That's true. Frank Chadwick has said that too sometimes.
0: <laughs> the, uh, I think the thing is that um, you, you're absolutely right, and the experience is, is exactly the same in the U.K., that 40K or fantasy or Dungeons & Dragons, actually are the typical routes that the teenager, the bored teenager, will take uh, into the hobby, and until, hope. Well, I say hopefully, and this is this is um, this is perhaps a little bit controversial, but hopefully they find a, an interesting history and move into. I'm in danger of saying real wargaming here, and that's. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean that. But, I think I think you guys know what I mean. That they, they, they expand their horizons and realize
4: that there is a hobby beyond the Games Workshop. Uh, the, game, the Games Workshop they have their own IP and, and it's a very well developed IP that they they price accordingly. But it's still narrow, and, and with historical gaming, it, it can be whatever you want. So I think there's just a broader range of interest. So if you like the abstract part of playing the game, you 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 don't. You know, I'm never going to be stuck. Be stuck in one period. You just have a range of options. So I think people, as they if they really like the hobby, they look for new challenges. And you know, a space orc is a space orc. They really don't change that much. So I think that that's a natural kind of draw where they evolve. We'll say they evolve up to uh, become a historical. Let's, let's <laughs>
1: throw that as the brand.
4: Well, I think. Also, when
0: they realize, and this is a six-mile podcast or a smaller-scale podcast, certainly, I think when the, the realization hits that for the price of one figure that Games Workshop sells, which uh, there's there's a figure, um, I think it's a giant figure, that costs, it's £105. Good Lord. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how many, what that works out as dollars, but it's £105 for the one model that you are get to put on the table. Uh, and about 130 I think. $130. You can buy a hell of a lot of 6 mil figures for that price. You can certainly buy two armies and um, it, you know, enjoy a, a historical period that's
4: educational and eye-opening. And lead well, I, I, I think so. yeah, when I started out, I jumped right to 28s because that was the closest scale to what I was used to painting, 40K. Uh, and right now, everything I do is either 15 and mostly 6 millimeter. For That same reason, you know, one you, you can do entire battles as opposed to skirmishes, there's a cost factor, and it's just easier to get ready. I mean, it's, 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 it's the time to the time ratio, time to, to prep time to play time is just so much more efficient with six millimeter stuff.
0: Yeah, and I think that's uh, it depends on what you're looking to represent on the table. So, I think certainly over the last few years, we've had this proliferation of. Uh, skirmish-type games. Oh, yes. Yeah. Model count reduces. So the the rules are almost written, aren't they, to uh, encourage you to only need 20, 25, 30 figures at most rather and than 528 mil figures.
2: I could be wrong here, but it seems at times that the skirmish gaming... Is popular because some of the wargaming magazines, it, it looks better um, in, in terms of pictures in an article to have a couple of close-ups of big, well-detailed figures. Um, I, I suspect, and I have zero data to prove this, but I suspect that that's what drives some of the some of the drive some of the impetus for the. 28 or 32 or whatever the hell it actually is now scale that's being used for skirmish games. And the, the drive for so many skirmish rule sets is that it's easy to make a good looking presentation of that in a wargaming magazine.
4: It's also easier for a consumer to get in and get out without a huge investment. So if you, if you get a skirmish game, it's 20, 30 bucks for the rules, 50 bucks for the for your first army, if you like it, great. If you don't, you can go spend that same amount to try the next one. Whereas, you know, my like my my twenty-eight millimeter ACW one, it took me five years to build up the couple thousand figures I have,
1: uh, and,
4: and you know that's a lot of pain, uh, and, and that's a lot of time dedicated. That I don't think I would do that again.
2: Serves you right for choosing such a heathen scale.
4: Well, I
1: was I, I was a foolish young man. Thank you, Tony. I apologize. <laughs>
0: Well, it, you, you're absolutely spot on, Tony. And Guy Bowers at uh, Wargames Soldier and Strategy has talked about this before about how difficult it is to photograph the smaller scales to make it look as interesting and as appealing uh, to the the bystander and the news agent, uh, where they might want to buy the magazine, um, because the 28 mil figure has just got you know, let's face it, there's far more detail on the figure, and it, it's, it is more photogenic, particularly if you've got a professional artist doing the painting, which invariably they have for the, the figures that they show in the, the magazines. So um, it's, it's absolutely true, and I've spoke to Guy about this, about uh, why can't we get more pictures of 6 mil figures into the magazines, into the hobby magazines. and It basically comes down to it's very difficult to photograph, six mil figures uh, in in an attractive manner that will have the same impact as
2: the twenty eight. Well,
1: that makes
0: sense.
2: Yeah. I've had a similar conversation um, with uh, Jasper uh, mm-hmm. on that same subject a couple of times. It's just, yeah, it's, and I, I think it catches the attention more. The one big figure for me as a gamer, the scale of the battle is the thing that cap with six millimeters the thing that captures my eye. To see the waves of troops coming across the field um as Pickett leads the charge. I all those six millimeter figures in row after row charging towards the Union the Union line, the Union guns, to me that's much more epic than the five twenty-eight millimeter figures doing whatever it is they're doing. Um I it also helps I think that and this is something Greg and I talked about. I I'm not really keen on being a sergeant and leading a squad. My megalomania requires that I be a colonel, a general, a field marshal, and lead much larger units on much more glorious adventures than the lowly private Smith and the rest of his squad. We're going to do today.
3: Well, that's absolutely right. Tony. I was thinking that myself. I'm a fat old man. I'm a brigadier.
2: <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Ah, you have the
0: uniform to prove it. Right. Yeah. And I, this is a, a point I was, I was going to touch on that. It, it depends on what sort of, what is your vision of those figures on the table and, and your position? as the commander, are you that squad commander or a lieutenant or an NCO, or do you see yourself as that core commander? And I know that I first uh, found out about you guys, not through Little Wars TV, but through a video that you put out previously uh, of the Gettysburg game. Ah, yes. Um, And I'm going to talk about the other Gettysburg game, which was part of Little Wars TV in a minute because that was my favourite video, but that one absolutely had me hooked. And I've, I've, I may have done Second Manassas as well, I think, prior to Little Wars TV, but that that first video, and I think you're on that, Tony, aren't you, certainly? I'm not sure about uh,
2: I Yes. Um, I was General Lee. I make it a point if we're playing a Gettysburg game to be General Lee, and not out of any misplaced identification with southern viewpoints on the war or any of that quite quite the opposite but whenever we get to the subject of Gettysburg um and it's something that Greg and I have talked about at length and we've talked in other podcasts at length there's that and, and part of the draw I think for every war gamer is that I could do what the other commander failed to do and for me that grail test is Lee at Gettysburg. So I'm always, if there's an opportunity to test one more theory about what could Lee have done differently at Gettysburg, um, I will jump on that. And we were doing a pretty good job of pounding the Union Army in that game, much to our surprise. I don't think anybody on the Confederate side realized just how hard we had hit them, how much damage we had done until after the game. And
0: uh, to be honest, I could I could sit on a podcast for probably four hours and talk about Lee at Gettysburg because it, <laughs> it's something that fascinates me. And, Let me know when I'll be there. All oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I'll pick you up. Um, Ed, um, on yourself then, so you were the British commander for the Warner game. Um, is it is that the sort of scale of game that you enjoy yourself? Are you are you a six mil gamer yourself, or is it just? Yes,
3: you? sir. Yes, sir. Right. Um, micro armor is is my go to
0: with the GHQ stuff. Is it and the command? C- yes, but I
3: also use uh, Lost Heroics. Uh, their infantry. <laughs> I was so pleased when I discovered Ross Heroics a long time ago, because at the time, GHQ infantry was was just awful. I mean, uh, Miles, I think you... Th-
2: Yesterday, it was awful.
3: <laughs> oh, some of it's quite good now.
4: They've gotten better, Tony.
3: The most recent uh, Heroics in Ross, uh, I, I, I think they're great. The, the uh, East Germans, I'm really looking forward to getting them out. And there is no East Germany anymore. <laughs> no, not. <I> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I have countless thousands of Heroics and Ross infantry and vehicles. Um, all my World War Two stuff is is H and R. Love absolutely. I would do their. Mo- I would do moderns if I was doing moderns again. I would do it all in Heroics and Ross.
3: Um, and I have to laugh. I'm so old that I completely miss Bacchus. The, the, the guys at the club had to tell me about
0: them. <laughs> 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 well, they are the new kid on the block. Can they you know, are. I wrote some
3: wonderful too.
0: Yes, yeah, very. Wonderful.
3: I have big plans for Megiddo nineteen eighteen.
0: Wow, we need to talk about that. <laughs> big plans, as in uh, uh, getting the forces and. and I think
3: government. I think we can do it. Um, one of the fellows at the club wanted to do Gallipoli, so there was a big mass effort there to paint things, and uh, I have uh, Indian. Indian Army uh, Cavalry, we go up a, a a notch in scale. It was Greg's idea. Um, a stand now represents a, a regiment, a battalion. Yes. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to
0: seeing that. And what rules would you think of using for those?
3: I, I think Greg had suggested Great War of Spearhead.
0: Well, um, Robert's Dunlop who was one of the first guests in the podcast actually uh, he's, uh, he's very knowledgeable on those rules and assisted in actually the production of the second edition uh, and he, he's, he's very knowledgeable on Gallipoli so I've reached out to Robert and uh, uh, get inside his head for anything that you, you get stuck on around the Gallipoli campaign certainly or the Mesopotamian uh, campaign so I look forward to seeing that if that appears on the channel Oh yeah!
2: Oh, I think that would be a, an awesome episode to do I, on I, the channel. I think that one's in the queue.
3: Well, we practiced Gallipoli. Remember that, Miles? Oh, what a slaughter! I enjoyed it. I was. I was yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you did. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we were you a Turk that day, Miles? I was a Turk that day, and all I
4: can say is that you got to take that unit off the board now. Uh huh.
3: <laughs> Poor Tom. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a it's a tough
4: old battle, isn't it? I think Uh, in the Great War spearhead, it's really tough. Um, But uh, Josh built a beautiful board. Yeah, that even though it's a special purpose board and therefore creating making the hobby an issue. Good point, Miles.
0: (laughs) I've um, COVID has has really uh, put a, a stop on most of my hobby projects, to be honest, because. My club hasn't been open since the beginning of... Well, uh, it's about 12 months, actually. Yeah, about 12 months next week. Um, so literally no face-to-face uh, gaming at all, and yet I've got these these projects on the go, in, including Great War Spearhead. Um, but so I've not had the opportunity, so I'm really looking forward to getting that set of rules to the table. It is a fun rules. So, it. it I'm fairly sure on the army.
2: Is it Army Group York or the name? Yes, Army Group York is the local club.
0: There was a there was a blog I think that uh, detailed a few battles uh, using
2: Great War Spearhead.
1: Oh yeah, we
3: invaded Belgium one night.
2: Yes. Ah, yes. That that happened so many times. What can yeah. you? Know? <laughs> or Belgium. We agreed not to talk about
1: that. Good.
0: <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, Belgium's a lovely country, but crikey, the amount of um, uh, soldiers that have marched backwards and forwards through that country doesn't bear thinking about it over the years. Um, Miles, you've, um, I know you're a big Six mil fan, and that
4: you've been building some Carthaginians. Uh, well, I've, I've built some uh, Republican Romans and some Parthians. I'm working on some Seleucid now. So not Carthaginians, actually. Not Carthaginians, but everyone but. I'm just not cool enough to do Carthaginians. Actually, Greg has a fabulous Carthaginian collection, and I'm a really good terrain maker, but I am, at best, a mediocre painter, so I, I will do stuff that people have done. Well, I'm you're bad. a quick painter. I'm a, quick a painter. very quick painter, which is probably why I'm a bad painter, too.
2: You want to see mediocre. where do you see the 15-millimeter Germans I'm painting for you.
4: Yeah. Well, we, we do have a, I do have two projects I'm working. On. I'm just about done with the six millimeter Russo-Japanese war force that Tony and Ed got to play with a couple times. Um, and, and then we are doing a 15 millimeter version of Stalingrad, uh, which, uh, we're going to test at the club this Monday. And, and, and Tony has very graciously uh, painted the Germans, uh, and, and so they'll look good and, and the Russians will look like they're finger painted. You make me incredibly jealous. All this talk of uh,
0: these great games, but I'm sure it will come back. Uh, uh, the my club Michael will reopen fairly soon. But when I, I talk about your speed painting, the, you're part of the Analog Hobby Painting Challenge, aren't you, Mark? Yes, I have. I've been part of it for
4: now. I think ten of the eleven years.
0: Wow! And I think within a day of it launching,
4: you painted an army. Uh well maybe not within a day but in two days I managed to paint a Republican Roman army uh which again you know you can take blurry pictures from really far away they look like they're painted and you know they're actually you know, they're really crappy it
1: helps uh, yeah
4: yeah i am I'm, I'm i'm currently i think i'm in second place now but but you know uh, i have high hopes
1: for for winning this one
4: so
0: if you use that as a Incentive each year to just get stuff done. Or I do, things?
4: you know. Each year, uh, I usually kind of organize my hobby around putting on a large convention game at, at an HMGS. HMGS is an organization in the states that puts on conventions, and, and, and the summer somewhat school historic on. And I'll usually run a game six, seven times, uh, and I orient my hobby kind of activity that year for getting ready for that. So this year we're going to do a, a big Stalingrad game. Uh, and they've been building central Stalingrad at, you know, one inch to uh, for 25 yards. And uh, I think, you know, I think it's going to be a pretty good game. And, and I use the uh, challenge as kind of a motivating factor to get a whole bunch of stuff done. I want to see how it travels. Uh, I do too. I'm a little nervous.
2: <laughs> While I haven't seen it in person from the pictures, oh, I think it God. represents about 15 square miles of Stalingrad.
4: It's, all, it's the entire central district from. from <laughs> wow. It, it, it got away from me. It, it didn't, I didn't intend to do this big. And I blame Ed. It's actually all Ed's fault because he got me hooked on hex terrain like, like a drug dealer. He said, hey, hey, kid, take a hit of this hex terrain. And I said, oh, sure, sir. Sure. That, that sounds fun. And, and now I'm just in an addict. It, it, it's awful.
2: For the record, I'm fairly certain that I have more Germans in winter kit than Von Paulus did.
4: <laughs> we, just, we just have to pick a week in February, and, and you know, depending on the week, there'll be fewer and fewer weeks. <laughs> it,
1: it, it,
0: There is am sure there should be a medical condition, shouldn't there, for the acquisition of wargaming
4: figures and terrain? It's, uh... Well, I, I tell my wife, you know, of the range of midlife crises I could have, being kind of infatuated with this hobby, like, like she's getting off easy. Like, I, you know, we have a bunch of friends and we're all in our fifties and, and some of these guys decide, you know, I'm going to leave my wife for a 25 year old. and Just outlandishly stupid things to do. I don't do that. Uh, I don't buy a sports car I can't fit into and look ridiculous driving around. I don't play golf. Like, like she hits a jackpot. Uh, I'm down in the basement painting little toy soldiers, not getting into trouble. Like,
2: like. She's like, a lucky woman, Miles. <laughs> Yeah.
4: Well, she's a genius. But
3: explain about the, the storage. That's that's the key.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. My
4: wife is a very smart woman, um, uh, other than choosing to marry me, <laughs> uh, uh, much like the club let me in. The people make these mistakes. And she says, yeah, I can spend as much as I want on the hobby, but she limits the amount of storage I have to keep stuff. So like, I can only grow to that level. Um, All right. And... Uh, I, I, I may be circumventing that by, by using a storage locker my son gets.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> you didn't hear that from me.
0: No, no, I'll edit that bit out. Don't you worry.
4: <laughs> well, that, that's
0: an intriguing. That's an intriguing uh, take on it, isn't it? You can have as much as you want, but you can't. You're limited to this amount of storage space. Yeah, it, right.
4: it's very difficult to be married to a woman so much smarter than you. You just, you just kind of accept it, and you just you just do what you do. not so uh, yeah, I've, I've taken part in the the
0: challenge. I haven't updated for a while, but I've got a lot to update on there. So we're running out of time. It's, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm hoping to get an update on this week.
4: Well, this this, this last two weeks usually we'll see an uptick of about forty percent. I also keep all the stats for the uh, uh, the, the, uh, the challenge. Uh, so oh right, okay. I run the spreadsheet. Surprisingly, I'm a math geek. This again will surprise you. Historical gamer, math geek. You know, never do those two things coincide. Um, but there'll be a, an immense number of posts these last two weeks. It'll be mind-boggling. And then, you know, the Kurt Campbell and we're talking about the analog hobbies painting challenge. Tony and I actually did an interview with Kurt on our podcast for our, our patreons, and it really is my favorite hobby. Event. And, and I, it's, uh, the people who are involved
1: in it are all wonderful. Yeah.
4: Uh, well, I
0: just wanted to dip my toe in this year, I think, because um, I wasn't quite sure how my work schedule was going to work out. So I set a fairly small target and hit it pretty quickly. Um, I'm certainly way beyond that now, but uh, yeah, it's been good. And some of the some of the pro- some of the product, uh, productivity of the people on there has been
4: phenomenal. Yeah, me, me and Martin Cook are, are in a bit of a points duel right now. He may get me in the end, but I'm, I'm going to give it a good try.
2: Uh, you can always cook the books, Miles. Don't sell yourself short.
4: Hey, it's what I do, bud.
2: <laughs>
4: How many points are you on? Uh, I am on a little over 3,000. 3,040.
2: <laughs> that is impressive.
1: That's impressive.
2: Miles has paid 100 figures while we've been talking. Oh, right. <laughs> okay.
4: I, I, I just started that Carthagenian army. You guilted me into doing it, so it's almost all right. Oh, gone. right. It's nearly done <laughs> now, I guess. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a period, actually, that I've. Um, it's, on, it's on my radar for this year, mainly because of you guys, because of the uh, the Trebia game uh, that you played out of the club with the Age of Hannibal, which I thought. I. Uh, I've got many favourite episodes. I'm I'm quite fickle, in that I will uh, roam around these videos and, and pledge my love. What, what are your favourite episodes? Well, being a Civil War nut, um, the the Gettysburg mm. and Antietam episodes I've watched countless times. And I, I said this to Greg actually that I, I'm probably skewing your viewing figures uh, solely through the m- amount of times I have watched. Each of those episodes, but I think probably Gettysburg edges it because of the grandeur of where you were when you you played that game. Uh, I know all three of you are present. I, I know Tony. Did, did Ed and uh, Miles yourself? Did you have a command there, or we,
1: uh, we were advising
0: the uh, the Union,
3: right, right, and uh oh, that's right, Miles. uh Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't say what you said. Well, you can say what I said. No,
1: no, no, no. You can believe
3: it,
4: but, but they needed that advice.
0: <laughs> well, they were the professional
2: historians, weren't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was um, the fact that we not only were in Lee's headquarters, but we played a Gettysburg game. On the battlefield, in Lee's headquarters, we had pizza. We had a pizza in Lee's headquarters while gaming the Battle of Gettysburg. I burned a vacation day so that I could go do that. And if you told me I would have had to have burned all my vacation for the year, I'd have been like, hell yeah. And,
4: and, and the battlefield trust couldn't have been more hospitable. They cleaned out all the furniture so we had everyone to put the tables up. Right. It was just a lovely event, and we're and we're hoping to do some some more projects with them in in the future because it's a wonderful organization.
0: I've actually become quite a a fan of Gary, and I can't think of his surname now. I can't think of it now, but the guy with He is
2: quite a character. He really is.
0: He's got quite a presence on YouTube actually through the battlefield. Is it the Battlefield Trust?
2: Yes. Yes. The American Battlefield Trust.
0: There you go. They've got quite a good YouTube channel and Gary um, stars on that channel quite a bit. And there's one or two lectures as well that Gary's given. So uh, I've become quite a, a fan of his as well uh, through that episode, really. Um, but it, it must have been an incredible experience. And Tony, I can hear it in, you, in your voice that uh, just how, how wonderful that was. I, I'd, have, I'd have burned all my vacation days and paid for the flight <laughs> over for that. If I'd had prior warning, I really, just to spectate, just to spectate.
2: Because I live so close to Gettysburg. Um, When I was in the second grade, our class field trip that year, we went to Gettysburg. So what are you, seven in the second grade? Uh, and I have been, well, I, I think you mentioned the Deep South earlier. Um, <laughs> but we we went to Gettysburg, and I was absolutely. I, I've been in love with the Battle of Gettysburg and the Gettysburg Battlefield ever since then. Yeah,
0: that's. Uh, I I am absolutely. I've never been, so it's it's on my bucket list. Oh, we will find room. a way
4: to get you over here, and we, we'd love to give you a tour of Gettysburg and. And Antietam. Antietam is actually it's smaller, but I think it's a much better presented battlefield. Right. I've I've
0: planned it a, a couple of times actually in the recent years, and just circumstances with work or family have, have um, dictated that it, it, I couldn't do it. But it's uh, in the next couple of years or so. It's it's it would probably be a solo journey for me. I'd, I'm not sure my wife <laughs> is up for a, a battlefield visit, but. Uh, uh, no yeah. stop. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Incredibly. <laughs> unless, you've got a, unless you've got a theme park somewhere close by and uh, a, a good shopping mall that she can uh, go and enjoy. I'm,
2: I'm oh, sure. yeah, we could point her in the right direction. Right.
1: We'll just drive around to the battlefields.
0: Yeah. yeah. um all this talk of uh, American history, Ed, as a uh, Anglophile as you were. What's what's uh, what is it about the the British history that attracts you to it? Because I, I'm I'm sort of your mirror image, if you like.
1: Because
3: yes, uh, grass is always greener, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know, your history is just so filled with
0: eccentric characters. Yeah, yeah, uh, British eccentric characters. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's been one or two of those through the years, isn't
1: there? And the comedy bit, I
3: forgot to mention that in that solo play I had. I mean, uh, Peter Cook, of uh, gosh, Dudley Moore, not so much for me. Oh. <laughs> to me, it was always Peter Cook. Okay. okay. From the
4: Star Wars film, and Spike Milligan. <laughs> Yeah.
0: no, that's Peter Cushing. I think uh, so no, you're they're,
4: they're English; they're all
0: the same. Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> fired. Yeah, you know that little tussle we had back in the uh, late 18th century,
3: <laughs> which well, I would argue it goes as a civil war, so well, shouldn't count against well,
2: so, it. Your, your help, we're burning our own capital now. The <laughs> yeah, yep, there you go. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we uh we're pretty good at that as well, to be honest. But uh, yeah, that, that's an interesting point actually. I've, I've had this discussion with somebody before about the um the War of Independence, as we call it, and the Revolution, as you call it. Well, it was technically a civil war, wasn't it? I think so. It was yeah? yeah. It? Wow. yeah absolutely. Everybody was English before that. Exactly. Exactly. I would like to see more War of Independence on the channel. I'll Say
1: well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Funny you should ask.
4: <laughs>
0: Don't give away any
4: secrets. Greg will shoot me. <laughs> uh, I'm still finishing painting up my Mel Gitschin Okay. <laughs> yeah,
0: so, um, so if, Ed, if there was one period of British history that you had to wargame for the rest of your life, what what would that be?
3: Oh, well, you know what that is. It would be Operation Crusader and uh, Micro Armour. I mean, there's a. Uh, I, I think that's the most wildly fluctuating battle in the most wildly fluctuating campaign of the war. Uh, Rommel is not at his his best in that uh, series of battles, and it's it's pretty balanced. And uh, you know, I like to think that the the duffers and the, the plotters uh, pull one out there. You're not going to bluff the auk.
4: I should explain that to.
1: <laughs> no, I'm yeah. not.
4: Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we think Ed just makes up these British phrases. We're, we're not sure if they're real or not, and, and we
3: <laughs> Well, the Auk is Claude Auchinleck. The the, the general going in is uh, Cunningham, who had won in East Africa, but he's out of his depth it, with mechanized warfare, and uh, he gets pulled, and, and Auchinleck goes in, and Rommel makes that dash to the wire, and and uh, Auchinleck's not going to be a bluffed out of his
0: position. No siree. So is that something you games then Ed?
1: previously? Yeah. Yeah. Many times. Gosh, I, we played, we played
3: command decision every Saturday night for almost a decade. Wow. And we had an eight by six table and uh, that was just right. You know, and then a couple trays for the pizza. Yep, good yeah. Good times.
0: Got off the pizza. <laughs> It sounds like my earliest experiences at my club. Actually, we fought the the American Civil War for probably the first ten years <laughs> of my of at the club. Well, it was always the joke that it lasted twice as long as the real thing. So. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was, it was great. And I, but I, I had to graduate from being uh, commander of wagons. Uh <laughs> trusted with a brigade and <laughs> division, but so yeah, it was a it was a long route route to the top for me, i And I must say I I do like to get the Italians in. Right, yeah. Yeah. And and we can do that now.
3: I have a newfound respect for the Italians. Uh I, I think too many times the the, the British would get uh, beat up a bit and uh they would say, Oh well it was the Germans. Well it turns out it wasn't the Germans that time.
0: Yeah, I think the Italian, uh, the Italian involvement is probably more interesting to me than uh, the Africa Corps. Actually, that sort of earlier phase
1: uh, of the era
0: is more interesting to me. But uh, it's not World War Two is certainly something that is not my specialist subject. Ah, um, I've, I've, I know I can recognise a Sherman tank. I can recognise <laughs> a Panther, but that's about the limit of it. I'm afraid. <laughs> and I've obviously seen the a Bridge Too Far. I, I recognise sure. who, who wears the
2: red berries, but uh, that's a Um So, where where does your where does your interest lie? It's really
0: the the whole stretch of American history from um, probably from the Seven Years' War, uh, French Indian War, uh, through to Vietnam, uh, and I've games all of, and everything in between uh, from the American perspective. Um, and that that's really down, I think, to watching Westerns on a Saturday afternoon, being fascinated by the Cowboys and Indians and then just stretching my uh, knowledge both ways, really, forwards and backwards from there. So um, I think it's the – and I, I got into trouble about this, actually, on an earlier podcast – where I talked about the, um, the, the glamour and the chivalry of the South, and that I I was sort of mis misquoted or misinterpreted, I think, when I was talking about that, and I certainly wasn't promoting the idea of the lost cause. Or there's been a lot of argument, hasn't there, about this this sort of perspective of the the dashing Confederate cavalry officers. Um, but for me, there is a, a an almost glamour around that period because of the films that I watched as a kid. The, the Western oh yeah, film.
1: yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, you know, I the Nazis had flashy uniforms. That exactly. doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we condone what they did. Precisely, uh, and Precisely. I we we live in an era, and I guess. Some of us are old enough that we're transitioning from one era to another. We now live in an era where you almost have to footnote when we're dealing with historical events, you almost have to footnote that we're not indicating that we share any sympathies, loyalties, admiration of group X or group Y. Um where group X or group Y is the confederacy or or Nazi Germany, especially, um, we we almost have to be apologetic for gaming those events. But if you look at it, there are bad guys who are horrible, horrible regimes who commit horrible acts all through history, and we game all of them. And that doesn't say that we're bad people, just that we have an interest in exploring the what-ifs of, of military history. And but, that's
0: a great point because, um, and again, I've talked about this before, that sometimes I feel as though as war gamers we might lose sight of what it, what it is we're actually representing on the table because – I don't think any of us would choose to be in the cornfield at Antietam, would we? Um, on that no. September morning, <laughs> you know, the, and, and the absolute slaughter that took place there, or on the first day of the battle of the Somme, or, you know, creeping, um, through the jungle in Vietnam. I don't think any of us would wish to be there, but it's worthy of study, isn't it? And it's worthy of, uh, looking at and, and seeing if you can t- change history, as you mentioned about your fascination with Robert E. Lee and the British Empire has certainly come into this discussion quite a lot recently on this side of the pond Um, there's this sort of counter reactionary uh, feeling towards should we be proud of the British Empire, the sun never set on the British Empire, it's the same but some of the things that we did to obtain all those territories and those countries and have such, such control weren't very nice things
2: Well, and I, you know, we have to look at that in context of the times, and we can't excuse the awful things that our ancestors did to Ed's ancestors or whatever, um, or vice versa, but we can't excuse how our ancestors, the, the evil deeds that they did, But to some extent, they are products of their times. And part of the reason we study history is to understand that that context and what happened in those times to make them behave the way they did. And I, I think while we do a good job of that, I think the takeaway that we get is that, well, we have to scrub all of that out of our of our lives and don't get me wrong, I there's a there's a debate lively debate in the US about Civil War uh statues. Yes. And I if they took them all down, all the Confederate statues down, that would be fine. We don't have any statues commemorating Hitler or Tojo here in the U.S. There's mm-hmm. no reason to have statues commemorating um, our enemies from another war. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but they're not a statue commemorating King George here in the United States in spite of the fact that he was our ruler for a good bit of time. Yes. Um,
4: no, no, it was very popular in the Hamilton
2: show. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> I, think, and I don't really think that's scrubbing yeah. history. I just think that you know, yeah. well, we don't I, it, honor our enemies regardless yeah. of whether they were, you know, our neighbors at one point. Yeah. But yeah. The historical, understandings
4: evolve, historical understandings evolve over time as
2: we learn more.
1: And,
4: uh, you know, I think, you know, as a historical gamer, you want to be accurate. Uh, back to, like, the Civil War, I think most people gravitate to the tactical situation the South usually finds itself in. which they're outnumbered. In the early war, they typically have better quality troops. It's more of a command challenge, the math problems there. But you have to remember, it's the audience, and some people are maybe offended by these symbols, and, and you have to be sensitive to that. You don't want to edit it, but you know, you have to. Everyone has a perspective, and it's important to take into account. I can remember when I used to do tournament games of bolt action. Uh, one guy showed up to a tournament game with me. I think I was running Japanese. You know, which were not the nicest people in the world, and, and this guy had an army of Hitler, and and I just couldn't play the game. I forfeited. It. I just I couldn't play the game. I just, I just didn't want to see that on the table. Doesn't mean I'm a bad guy. That doesn't mean he's a bad guy. But you know, we all have different kind of perspectives. of that.
0: I think we have to be, we have to be, we have to be aware and conscious of everybody's sensibilities <laughs> towards these yeah. issues, and sort of have that. Breadth of understanding. I think when there's no understanding or no acceptance, I think that's when people start to lock horns, isn't it? But um, we, we've had the issue of statues in this country, Tony. Um, I, I doubt it's made made it across the pond, but um, there's been attacks on statues in local towns and cities of uh, uh, statues of uh, previous of slavers um, who through the their Gains through slavery were very, very philanthropic within the uh, endeavours within the local town. So building schools or hospitals, or and there was a a famous case last year where um, a statue of a guy called Edward Coulson was taken down in or taken down by a mob. Essentially, Uh, they pulled it down uh, in the centre of Bristol and threw it into the into the um, local harbour. Uh, that made the news here, and there was a big debate on whether that the rights and wrongs of a mob deciding to pull this statue down um, of a, a guy that pr- prior to that incident nobody had ever heard of. He, outside of Bristol, nobody had ever heard of this guy, but suddenly he was front page news across the nation. But yeah, you're right, and I, I'm, I've been aware of the Confederate statue issue. In, in the states, and it, it's a it's just a, a real difficult one, um, and we've gone quite deep <laughs> on the conversation. So let's bring some levity. <laughs> let's get
1: back to talking about six millimeter. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, let's talk six mill.
4: I've got I've got a I've got on one of my train boards a six millimeter statue of a Confederate uh, general. I'm, I'm not sure if I should take it off or not.
2: I'm building a six millimeter army of of. the general populace to pull that shit down for you.
3: (laughs) I'm going to be carving the tree stump into a likeness of Bomber Harris in my backyard.
0: (laughs) Now, Bomber Harris is an interesting one, Ed, because... I know. Yeah, have you followed... Did you follow the story back in the day? Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: (laughs) Unless you're carving him in six millimetre scale, it's not relevant to this conversation. (laughs) Oh, Lord.
1: very small tree.
0: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I can all I can well remember being on a battlefield tour with some friends many years ago when there was discussion about uh, soldiers during the first world war who got shot for cowardice. Uh, there was a, a national discussion about them being pardoned because it was, ident- it had been identified that in most cases they were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, which wasn't recognized back then. It was the termed shell shock back then. Um, but a lot of these guys who were shot were suffering from this mental condition, and they weren't cowards they were just uh not in the in the right mind to to take uh, take the step out of the trench and they did receive pardons and there was a, we had a discussion around a, a dinner table in a Belgian farmhouse um, about this, and the table was split essentially there was twelve thirteen guys sat around the table, and we were split and these conversations do split people, don't they? I think, um, there's no right or wrong answer.
2: Yeah. Some of the, some of the conversations are, are difficult to have. And I think we have them more, not only because as Dylan said, the times they are a changing, but in efforts to get non-historical gamers, um, to join us in the hobby, we wind up having these conversations more. Uh, Steve and I did a podcast not long ago with somebody who's not a historical gamer, a uh, gamer but nothing historical and he asked the question about how do you how do you justify playing the Nazis or the confederates or the bad guy as it were in, in a war game and and I find myself, this is something that comes up. You explain to somebody, oh, I do war gaming, And you start explaining it to them, like, you, you play the Nazis? Well, sometimes. And I think there's a difference between uh, tonight I'm playing Rommel in the desert, and tonight I'm showing up to play the Nazis in a, a T-shirt with some Nazi imagery on it. You know, at that point, uh, and I I don't know about your experiences, but, you know, I've had experiences where we've had, when the club was in a public space where we maybe had an individual show up wearing some Nazi-themed apparel, like, dude, what are you thinking? You gotta go. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, that's something we're facing now as we try to expand and pick up people from fantasy gaming and non-war gaming. Um, it's just it's where we are as a culture at this point in history
3: well I made a mistake like that Tony do you remember um, I, I I made blinds for hidden troops for Lardy's game and I used the national flag it was a good sized oval <laughs> I had the swastika flag out there my lord the beginning of the game it looked like a really Ravenstall uh, documentary or <laughs>
0: propaganda film
1: yeah, it was... It's.
3: I mean, I got it eventually, but I think somebody gave me a nudge, too, and said, hey, what are you doing over there?
2: <laughs> well, and that's, you know, and it's difficult when we're dealing with the German flag, the Confederate flag, because it is the symbol that would have been on the battlefield. I mean, the Germans draped the, the Nazi flag with the swastika across the tops of tanks so that Stukas wouldn't wouldn't strafe them. So to have that on a miniature on the table is historically correct. And I. But it was jarring. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. And there are people now who, when you do that, once upon a time, if you did that in a convention, nobody thought any less of you. They understood this is the context in which it is taken. But as we expand the reach of the hobby, we have to wrestle with that question. And I. I, for me personally, the answer is that, yes, that's a swastika on that little tank because that's a German tank in World War II, and that's what they looked like. I'm not doing it because I thought Goebbels was a sweetheart. I'm doing it because that's the way the little things looked on the battlefield. I, I, I think it
4: gives us an opportunity to educate. and, and You know, historical gamers, we, we tend to like the history. We tend to know it. And, you know, you can't duck these debates from in society. I think these debates are quite healthy. Uh, and and I think we just have to kind of make sure it's historically, you know, relevant and not gratuitous. That's why, you know, a lot of games like skirmish games, you can pick your faction. I would never pick to be an SS faction, even if the rules made them better for some reason. Uh, I just wouldn't choose to do that. And I, and, and I get a little nervous around people who do choose that. Uh, But if you're doing a battle where there's SS troops involved, like the Kiev episode, Tony, you know they 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 should be in there, and, and they should you know be historically relevant. And I think that's kind of the the fine line between relevancy and, and the truth. So yeah, like
2: and I, you know, one of the things that's in the back of my mind that's been brewing for an epic six millimeter World War Two game. Um, would be the first SS Panzer Corps at Kursk, and um, while I do need to send Andy some more money over at H and R, I'm close to having enough miniatures to do all of that, um, without having to repaint anything. But there again, you know, there's going to be people that say, "Oh, why did you pick the SS?" Well, I want to do the first SS Panzer Corps at Kursk because they were charged with being the lead element on their wing of the battlefield. They're going to be the first people thrown at the Russians. So from a gaming perspective, um, they got all the good equipment, and especially for that battle, they got a crapload of the latest and greatest equipment, because they're going to be the tip of the spear. So from a gaming perspective, if I want to get all the German goodies out on the table in a battle, well, that's pretty much who it's going to have to be.
3: Um, oh, that's going to be a slog, though. That that makes my brain hurt. That's like when uh, Chow was fighting Tom for, for uh, the D-Day game.
2: Remember that? <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, God. Well, no, I'm thinking that I will do after the breakthrough. Okay. Uh, what is it? the the tank battle. Broken through the last line of defense, there's nothing to prevent them from swinging around and encircling the Russians. And the Russian reserve, the last of the Russian tank strength, is committed. And it's this monumental tank battle on this gigantic open plain um for people who love little tanks? What could possibly top that? Don't answer, because I've got most of that painted too. Um having been a child of the Cold War, um we always fully expected that one day the Soviet hordes would come streaming across the border into central Germany and the British Army on the Rhine and The American 7th Corps would be hard-pressed to prevent them from overrunning all of Western Europe. And so somewhere here in the pile of crap that is my work area, there's um, a Soviet tank division, maybe a little more at this point, and a bunch of U.S. armor circa 1983 waiting for a a big fold-a-gap game. Way
3: ahead of you, friend. In the Fulda Gap, that's not where the action's at. It's up in Northag.
2: <laughs> I know, I know. That's where the Brits are.
4: It's, it's incredible. You just can't stop them.
2: I have nothing against my British allies. Um, but my love of British history revolves around two things. Um, one of which is like a six millimeter-ish thing would be um, – World War One, Naval War, and the Hundred Years' War. The Hundred Years' War and the British Navy in World War One are two of my favorite periods in history.
4: I'm going to choose to associate with them.
0: Yeah. Um, just sticking with you then, Miles, we've just heard that Tony um, enjoys or would like to, do the Hundred Years' War, First World War naval from a British perspective. What's, uh, what, what tickle? What floats your boat or tickles your fancy in that? Well,
4: well there's two things. One is Stalingrad, which I'm gearing up for to, to finish that out. And then the other thing I, I really... Like win that one. Hmm? The British yeah. win that one. Yes. Uh, well, the British lend-lease equipment helps out a lot. Right? So, so Ed will have a reason to play. Um, and, and the other thing I'd like to do is... I really want to run a campaign uh, for the entire Russo-Japanese War Corps. I think that would be a lot of fun. And I may have just finished painting every capital ship that participated in the campaign all oh, night. Okay. Uh, which you can see, Sean, in one of my entries in the uh, Into the Hot uh, Analog Painting Challenge. Um, and through the wonderful world of 3D resin printing, I have access to all the ships. Um... And and I think, yeah, the the Russo-Japanese War fascinates me, uh, because it's a great war game scenario where it's a race against the clock against one side who starts offensively, the Japanese, but the Russians build up strength. And eventually they can switch over if if the Japanese aren't fast enough. I think it's a, it's a great scenario to play out and and working on some rules to run that. You know, we'll hopefully dupe people like Ed and Tony to, to indulge my uh, passion project.
2: See, and I love that because what I knew about the Russo-Japanese War was that there were a couple of great naval battles, which I would love to game, and I knew exactly nothing about the ground war, and now I'm, I'm seeing that there's this whole other part of the war about which I knew nothing, and I some great gaming opportunities and I think that's probably something that every war gamer, well most war gamers um, an aspect that keeps them in the hobby is that there's always some new bit of history that you haven't you haven't gamed yet yeah, or not considered right
1: or not considered yeah yeah
0: And, and that is the abiding attraction isn't it I think of the hobby that we've got this huge span of history of of military history and conflict that we can dive into. Um, and we are, well, thank God <laughs>
3: we're not lacking for that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but we, we are in such a fortunate position that. In- <laughs> and,
4: and, and I think it's a golden age for the hobby. I mean, the internet may be playing hell for, for retail stores. But, you know, it gives a company like Bacchus worldwide reach for a very narrow type of product. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, the, the level of choice we have today as gamers is, is astonishes me. And the technological kind of implication of resin printing, which, which will become more, more feasible for everyone to have, I mean, you know, I think in 10 years, if I want a, the entire British home fleet, I can buy the files online and probably have them printed out in a couple hours.
3: Now, and I think Sean is right. I think in 10 years, it'll be printing in color, the colors that you want. I think they're
4: coming out that way. Uh, and so I, I think, I think it's, 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 a, it's, it's a great age for us. And, and I think the, the opportunities will just grow. Uh, and for those of us who are lucky enough to have a club, Uh, and and be able to find like-minded people you know it's 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 just a very fulfilling hobby yeah and that's um yeah when i was speaking to aaron uh, in the last show
0: about that uh, i think he, he got his doubts about the ability to print figures in color but i'm sure there's a college kid somewhere that will be developing this the technology in 10 years time
3: i've been thinking about that all week and i and i'll I'll bet the mortgage that you're on that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, You know, 10, 20 years ago, we never thought that we'd be able to do the 3D printing in our own home and uh, have such access to all these files. And, um, I mean, Aaron's a great example. He's he's essentially a self-sufficient wargamer now. Right. Um, He doesn't really need anything off the commercial market. Um, And for things like the Russo-Japanese War or some other – Obscure, more obscure conflict uh, down the road. There'll be somebody somewhere that
4: will be able to develop a file for that, and you'll be able to print it off in your, in your I, own I, I do have a confession. My my Russo-Japanese 6mm troops are all World War One Bacchus troops. Don't don't tell anybody.
0: <laughs> There's no
3: shame there. Well, I'm looking forward to playing with those uh, ships, Miles. I think they're great. Oh, absolutely. Well, if that... Oh, uh, Great Britain was in a treaty with Japan then.
4: Oh, and, and <laughs> Most of the ships were built in English
1: shipyards. Quite right.
2: right. I, you know, Miles was talking about how the 3D printing um, is having such an impact, and it's going to continue to have yes. an impact on the hobby. And I, and I think at the end of the day, it's it's in a positive way. And I think between 3D printing and... The whole COVID pandemic, when things go back to whatever normal is, I think that both of those things are going to have long-term changes on the hobby. Uh, 3D printing is going to have a long-term effect on the hobby in terms of there's now no miniature, no matter how obscure, no time period, no matter how remote, that you can't find a file and make. You know the big the big names don't manufacture that ship. Somebody has an STL file and you can print that thing yourself. Um, I think that is is tremendous. The COVID situation has got to have some long term impact on our hobby. In that, I don't know the specifics of the convention situation in England, but We haven't had a convention here in the U.S. now for a year, and realistically, we're probably not going to see any big conventions this year either. So we're looking at potentially a two-year gap where there's no conventions. I'm sure there's something going on somewhere that is on the down low, but The big wargaming conventions, the big miniature gaming and role-playing conventions have all been canceled again for 2021 due to COVID. When COVID is now no longer something to be terrified of, what do we go back to? The organizations that ran these conventions, will they still have a budget to set up and run conventions in the future? Will people have found different ways to go about gaming that they're not interested in traveling to conventions anymore? What does that look like? Yeah, I,
4: I, I think there's an awful lot of pent up demand. Now, I'm, I'm a little dubious that the organizations that put these things on will change as they've been, they've proven to be rather change resistant in the past. Um, but I think, you know, they'll probably be. I think it's a net positive because, like, again, the HFGS conventions that we always talk about, they're getting a little long in the tooth. They weren't as exciting. It was the same thing. Now, two years passed. I'm actually really interested in going, and I'm going to go, and I would actually pay a good bit more money to go this time because it hadn't been in a while. Uh, but I think the technological – real impl- implication technological aspect is that the capital requirement to be a manufacturer – in this hobby is going to be a lot lower. It's going to be mostly a CAD CAM screen uh, and a word processing package, and you won't need casting tools. And, and I think that will have a pretty profound impact on what it means to be making your money in this hobby. And, and I'm not sure what that looks like. Yeah, that's that's
0: really interesting because, uh, particularly on the manufacturing side, um, the traditional guy who casts figures in his shed um, I don't think he's going to have the wherewithal or the capital behind him to to make that step towards CAD or 3D printing well he, he will need to I think if if he wants to remain competitive in the market and if he doesn't if he doesn't evolve into that sort of model then I think we'll see a lot of these smaller um, manufacturers
4: go by the wayside. I, I think you'll see them stagnate. They won't fall off a cliff. Um, no. you know, I'll still order lots and lots of Bacchus figures and, and, and yeah. do my best to, to keep them afloat. But they won't grow as much. And, and they'll be supplanted by other people with different skill sets. Some will adapt. Most probably won't, which is the norm in any type of industrial change. Um, but it'll be a different set of skill sets and, and it'll also be attracting a, more, a younger audience. Uh, who is more used to using these things? You know, I've got a 3D printer; it never works. My son has a 3D printer; it always works. So he'll, he'll be more successful making that uh, making that change than, than I will,
1: and, and, yeah. and that's
4: okay. And, and the show scene
0: as well. I, I think you both spot on um, about that. In the UK, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when we're looking towards the end of June as a complete lifting of all. Uh, social restrictions and, and legislation that prevents, uh, social contact. Um, and my, the show that I've been looking forward to the most, well, now for 18 months is the Joe Six. And that is the weekend after. That's the 4th of July. Um, after, after the lockdowns, after the lockdown has been lifted. So whether that is too close and even if Peter decides to go ahead with it has, Will, will the, the, customers and the visitors have the confidence to attend, um, the show as it was prior to COVID? Um, will people still want to wear masks? And, and it's, it's going to be a very weird situation. And salute. I know you've been to salute miles, haven't you? Yes. Um, and experienced the volume of people that we get at salute. That's been put back to November, early November, I think. For the
4: Mm -hmm. shoot. And very Uh, convenient when I have a board meeting in London at the same time. So uh, I
2: I get to go again. What did Miles know and when did he know it?
0: Yes. (laughs) There's an investigation needed there, I
4: think. Well, we don't need to go into those details, Tony. Those are things we don't need. (laughs)
0: you <laughs> wow. can edit that bit out don't you worry um, but yes that that would be really interesting and will it then revert back to its April slot so you'll only have six months uh, between the two shows um, I think it's all up in the air at the moment and I, I miss shows terribly here yeah. they're very different beasts as I've spoken about before to what you have in the US but I, re- I really do miss that contact with people that I know walking down the country and the traders, the buzz that we get from visiting a show and, and finding that that thing that you didn't know you needed, um, and you walk out with a whole new project. Uh, that, yeah, I really miss it, and I, I really hope that things return to normal as soon as possible.
2: I'm really concerned to see, or curious or interested to see how. The economic impact of shutdowns and lockdowns affects the number of vendors and product prices and the number of attendees I don't know the situation in the UK but you know a lot of people here in the states have suffered a, a lot of economic hardship as a result of of covid yeah. um, and I don't know what percentage of them, you know, how that affected the gaming community as opposed to the community at large. But will people – there's a convention, you know, in five months. Are people going to be in a position where, oh, yes, I have uh, disposable income to travel and and spend at a convention? You know, at some point, obviously, the economic problems associated with COVID – will have resolved themselves. But initially, you know, that's got to be a concern for the convention planners. Are we going to get a big enough draw to pay for this venue? Um, You know, I'm sure there's some juggling there in terms of what what we plan this convention to look like, these first few conventions at any rate. Careful, Um,
4: Careful, Tony. I'm going to start waxing philosophic on economic things. Oh, I'm just worried about juggling.
3: There's been an awful lot of juggling going on.
2: (laughs) You don't (laughs) have any more of that.
0: I never
3: was. I
2: just, you know, in my mind, I think to myself, much as I would like to get back to the conventions of old, as Miles said, um, the HMGS conventions um, are not, they're not what they used to be. I hate to say, you know. They're not
4: paragons of innovation.
2: No, right. Right. I hate to say, oh, the golden day, the, the glory years have passed, because then I sound like one of those old codgers that I, that I dislike. Hey, dislike. me, But <laughs> my um, my in the case of the HMGS conventions, I, I do believe that their better years, that ship has sailed, um, their better years are behind them. This is for them perhaps with some some more innovative, forward-thinking leadership. This is perhaps an opportunity to revisit what an HMGS convention looks like, to rethink it, reinvent it, because they've had this this break, um, and people would just be happy to go to a convention and push lead. Maybe this is an opportunity for some of these conventions that have been uh, uh, slowly dwindling to revitalize themselves, reformat themselves, and draw bigger, newer crowd. Or maybe I'm just dreaming. I don't know.
1: Well, no,
4: a crisis is, is always usually gets an organization to change its thinking and, and hopefully take advantage of it. Now, I love going to the HFGS conventions. I don't want to beat up on them too much, but they all are the same thing. We did it that way last time. Let's do it away again, and and, and they're decaying uh and, and so hopefully they'll they'll take advantage of that uh i do think you know this year will be a little odd there is going to be a bit of a consumer credit kind of pop when all the government supports get pulled out uh i think the us market is distorted a little bit more than the uk market um but the really sad thing about covid is the vast majority of the impact is in people who have jobs like waiters and 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 and, and retail workers, where the establishments are closed. And it's kind of savage the lower 40% of the economic spectrum. And there's a bill still to be paid on that. There's a lot of stuff in suspense. We're not going to go through a 2008 type situation, but there will be a bit of a downturn when, when we, we get to normal. But then I think the, the economy's there's so much pent up demand that, that there'll be a blip and then we'll, we'll be off to the races. Yeah.
0: and uh, is it is the HMGS the only organization that runs shows in in the US? Are there no sort of independent?
4: Shows there there are, there are a handful of ones because we're in the mid Atlantic, the US East Coast area. HMGS is kind of the group that does those shows. If if I lived in uh, out west, I'd be saying another organization uh, that does the shows. But the biggest ones that we know of are are the three shows.
2: Now. There are there's some huge let's face it, there's Origins and Gen Con and Adepticon, uh which are gargantuan. And they'll probably be gargantuan the first time they get back to running one of those conventions. But those conventions are ninety-nine percent of that convention is geared to a different market. It's geared to role-playing games and sci-fi fantasy and board games, and just a little tiny couple of people in the corner doing historical gaming. Oh, i just come
4: up with a brilliant idea. The greatest episode for Little Wars TV is that we pay for Ed to go to Gen Con and we just <laughs> film him walking around with a look of disgust on his face and fantasy players
1: in
2: public. Right. Yeah. Well all the cosplay people accost him. I would pay cosplayers to come up to Ed and ask him what his costume is.
0: <laughs> How do you feel about that, Ed?
3: Yeah, I, I would. I would do that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, it's it, it's like the greatest reality show ever. We're, 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 we're Consider
1: it done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I need to be there. Yeah, the, I, I had something to say too. <laughs> I, I and I know what it
3: was during the lockdown. I thought things had worked well. We um uh, vassal. I played a lot of board games online with uh, miles and and uh, Tom. I thought that worked great. I was sure the internet was going to break, but it didn't. and that uh, we we did a couple of what was that called virtual tabletop games.
4: What do you think will happen with those? Will they s- stick around? I, I think they'll they'll expand because it's an easy way to get people to try the hobby.
3: Uh, I mean, rock down the If it was somebody from Louisiana. I mean, I'm not going to game with them every day, but uh, virtually,
4: why not? Yeah. And if I'm a historical producer and I'm making rules, why not make them that they poured over to that? That just increases the reach of potential. Oh, good idea.
2: Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I think, you know, for things like Vassal and Roll D20 and those sorts of engines that were allowing people to do online gaming prior to the pandemic. They certainly gained some market share, as it were, um, as a result of the pandemic. And I think they will keep that because, like you said, Ed, you gamed with somebody from Louisiana. You're not going to do that Face to face, but you can still continue to do that after all this is over. Um, so I think those engines will thrive and continue to get um, a, a, a bigger share of the audience, just because you can uh, you can reach out to people who share interests who you otherwise wouldn't meet or get to game with. There's
0: the guy that uh, runs the YouTube channel um, that uses tabletop simulator and plays games using Bluka and LaSalle and these these kind of rules. His name's Jim, and I can't remember his surname now. But he is now, as a result of the COVID situation, he doesn't think he'll ever return to face-to-face gaming uh, because he, he can... He doesn't need to paint ten thousand figures to fight Leipzig like he has on on his YouTube channel over thirty two hours, where he's had people from all around the country participating in this huge game mm-hmm. uh, that he's recorded on YouTube. Um, because it, it's so easy. I mean, you don't even have to put your pants on to get in <laughs> So you know. Well,
3: yeah, I was going to point out it gets around personal hygiene issues too. Sure. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Exactly. exactly.
4: Well, that's never been a barrier for you in the past.
2: <laughs> Once a month, we have a pants-free gaming event at the club now. Tony, <laughs> Tony,
1: didn't <laughs> we not speak about that?
0: Yeah, so I, I, I absolutely agree. I think um, the landscape of gaming... Uh, has changed and I think will continue to change with the impact of, as Ed says about Vassal or Tabletop Simulator
4: or Roll20, uh, Roll20. I think um, anything that reduces the barrier for someone to give it a try is a great thing. Um, I think I'm going to be old school. There's something visually appealing about the moving diorama of a 3D game, but there's all, there's also a lot of work and you got to want to do that work. Um, uh, and you gotta you got to enjoy that work. And, and that can be intimidating to someone who says, do I want to try this at all? And if we can get more people to try it and we get that pull through into the actually making the jump, that's a fantastic outcome.
2: Yeah, yeah. 100% agree. Oh, yeah, as tabletop gamers, we certainly can't look at virtual gaming as a bad thing. Virtual gaming is one more way we can drag people down to arguing about whether or not we have the right color cuffs on our Napoleonic figures.
0: But at the click of a button, you can change that, can't you, Say, Well, no, you,
4: you start arguing that you got a pixel out of, out of, out of order
0: on you. Ah, order. there you go, yeah. <laughs> it's the wrong color pixel. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it, it's all unknown, isn't it? We're, we're guessing, and uh, only time will tell, and... I know that uh, speaking to Greg previously, that some of you guys were thinking of coming over to the Joy of Six. Um, I'm very sad that that is unlikely to happen this year, but hopefully. It,
4: it is on my schedule. Assuming I, I get my vaccine and, and my wife gives me the okay, uh, I will be attending. Um, very rude of you to uh, schedule it during July Fourth. You know, I'm a little 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 chap at that.
0: I, th- I thought that was the perfect date, actually. And we could have arranged some sort of revolution battle, uh, between the, the Brits and the Yanks. So I thought that would have been quite
1: topical.
4: Yeah. I, well, yeah. You know, the one thing I, I really miss because COVID is business. Travel. I used to go to London once a month for, for work. And, and, and you know, obviously I haven't been there in years, So I, I got to restart those trips, but, uh, I, I am hoping to go to Joy of Six and, uh, uh,
1: and, and, uh, and enjoy that in
4: and, and lovely Sheffield.
0: And lovely Sheffield, yes, the city of steel. I um, and uh, likewise, I uh, I, uh, I don't joke. I, it's on my bucket list to get to Gettysburg, and if I could knock on the door of your uh, headquarters and catch a game, that would be even better. We, we would be happy to put up with oh, you. Oh. Yeah, and uh, I'd be on the British side with Ed. Right,
2: we'll probably do forty k that night. Oh, <laughs> do you know that would be my. No, life. no, we're going to do the.
4: Uh, we're going to do, uh, fantasy, high
2: fantasy. We'll
4: make Ed be elves. Yeah. Elves are kind of like Brits, aren't they? Uh, uh,
1: yeah. we've
0: all got pointy ears and, <laughs> uh, gents. It's been fantastic uh, speaking to you. Um, we've touched quite a few different uh, bases, haven't we? That uh, was a deliberate pun there for Ed on the baseball. Team.
4: Yeah, yep,
3: yep. I got that. You got that. <laughs> Um, by the way Sean
4: I I, I have to do a commercial or Greg will will, will hurt me Um, I just want to remind all of your readers that that we have the Caesar Awards coming up soon and and your podcast is one of the nominees for for podcast of the year Uh, and and we hope everybody turns in Uh, we're going to be filming those at the end of March and it will likely be a disaster and then through the magic of editing we'll try to make it look good
0: (laughs) Well, that that is that's the best bit, to be honest. I love the bloopers that you guys do sometimes. The oh, there'll be
4: bloopers in this one.
2: Yeah, no <laughs> doubt.
0: Uh, yeah, I've gone completely off my train of thought there.
4: Anyway, <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, so at some point I'll, I'll
4: I'll be I'll be visiting. I, I, but yeah, I apologise for jamming in the commercial, but it was on my to do list.
0: No, no, absolutely. I would, uh, I uh, heartily. Uh, Support that recommendation to get uh, to uh, watch that show when it comes out. I'm really looking forward to it. And if uh, if this podcast is uh, nominated, that's, that's actually absolutely fantastic. Um, yes, gents, uh, it's been absolutely fascinating to speak to three of my hobby heroes. <laughs> I've been, uh, it's like it's, for me it's a bit like talking to uh, the the stars of my favourite soap opera or uh, TV show. Sean, um, if we're your heroes,
4: you really need to raise your
0: hand. Well, confidence. yeah, you're in a rut. Right. <laughs> anyway, gents, uh, it has been absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm about 1.30 in the morning here.
4: so yeah, It's a little late for you, Sean, so we should let yeah. you go. Thank yeah. you yeah. so yep. much for inviting us. It was very gracious of you, and, and as I told you in the email, I was thrilled to have the opportunity to be on my, my favorite podcast. And, and a very great, very, very, very generous of you to say
0: so, but um, it's... The, the, the Pleasure's all mine, really, to speak to you three guys, and it's uh, this is a genuine offer of an open invitation for any of you to come back on the podcast at any time. Normally, I will I'll set two requirements for any guest, uh, and the first requirement will be that you will come back on, but it's an absolute open uh, invitation for. Any of you to come uh, back onto the cast because it's been an absolute blast uh, to speak.
1: Oh my God,
2: we'd be—I'd be honored. I can't speak for my cohorts, but I would be honored. Yeah. Yeah. Oh
0: yes, of course. Yeah, I think we've got a a lot more to talk about, uh, and uh, it's been real fun. Um, So uh, the uh, there are those two um, things I require of every guest that comes onto the show, and the first one of uh, I've stated already that you' come back on at some point in the future uh, and uh, not too long in the future hopefully uh, but the the other one is to add a tome to God's own scale virtual library and I must take uh, your advice miles and, and add an Amazon link to these books uh, at some point in the future and I, I find some spare time that was a really good suggestion um, but, Tony, I'm going to come to you first, please, if you've got something you can offer for me.
2: <sighs> a book to add to the God's Own Skill Library. Make it a good one. Oh, no pressure. <laughs> oh, the pressure is on. Um, Coddington's The Gettysburg Campaign.
1: Oh, that's a good one.
2: Even and I like that. It's um. New book or is it no, different? no, it's ancient. Um it was published uh nineteen sixty four. It was published the year I was born. Okay. That was published posthumously by his widow. He worked on it for a number of years and died before it was printed. Okay. Um but it is was one of the first adult works that I read on the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, And it's the whole campaign. It's from Lee and Davis planning the campaign to the retreat back across the Rappahannock. Um, And it's just it's a good read. And unlike so much of the Civil War histories, um, Coddington is a Pennsylvania native. He's a Yankee and he is not one of Meade's detractors. So it's a perspective on the battle that is a little different than uh, than a lot of the others.
0: Right. Okay. That is one I I don't always um, look up the books that are, are recommended because uh, they might not be quite in my period of interest, but that is certainly one that I shall be um, looking to purchase at some point. My, I've, I do have quite a collection of books on Gettysburg but that one has uh, slipped me by, so thank you for that, Tony. Uh, that shall take of Place on the God's Own Scale Virtual Library shelves. Ed, I'm going to come to you last, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain why um, when I come to you, so a bit bit of a breather for you, Ed. Um, Miles, have you got something
4: for me? I do have a book. Uh, it's a book that came out in the early 90s called Tenazan. By George Pfeiffer, uh, and it's a book about the Battle of Okinawa and, and how it influenced the uh, decision to drop the atomic bomb. And it's it it, it it book. It's really three books. It has perspective of a U.S. Marine through the battle, a, a Japanese officer who survived the battle, and and the most intriguing one is of an Okinawan civilian, uh, and the horror is that the the Okinawan civilian population went. So it's a it's a very difficult book to read because of what it depicts, but it really it really is probably one of the best books about the Pacific War I've ever read,
1: and, and one that I I reread a couple times, and, and I highly recommend. Uh, yeah, yeah the, the Pacific War is I've cited
0: many times. The World War, uh, World War II is something that um I've not really dived into much, but the Pacific War is certainly one.
1: Uh, theatre that would rasp me uh, a bit more perhaps. Uh, so that, that's an interesting one. I've made a note of that and that
0: shall take pride of place on the shelf as well next to, uh, the Coddington book. Ed, um, I'm coming to you last, uh, just to give you a bit more breathing time, but, um, I'm, I'm going to ask you for two books. Uh, one is, <laughs> You may you, this is I, I do apologise. I should have really uh, primed you for this, but uh, I, I, and you may not be able to fulfil this, so don't worry if you can't. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll take the hopefully a book that you've had. I think of uh, for the historical part of the shelves, but I'd like a baseball book as well.
3: Oddly enough, I had picked out a baseball book for you. No. Yes, yes, I have it in here before me. It's that's uh, Tim McCarver's baseball for brain surgeons and other fans.
0: Okay, I fit into the other fun category just in case you.
3: Tim McCarver was a, a catcher and uh, turned uh, an announcer, and he's since retired. He uh, he caught for um, Bob Gibson. Um, do you know Bob Gibson? No. no. Oh, well, he's a character. He. Uh, before he went into baseball, he played basketball for the Harlem Globetrotters. Have you ever heard of them? Oh yes, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, uh, he he quit the Globetrotters because he didn't like the clowning around. Bob was a real serious kind of guy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> did you know what? Did you know what he was letting himself in for when he joined the Harlem Globetrotters? <laughs> no. well, well, isn't it?
3: funny thing about gibson though uh they had the old timers game which is you know for charity and just for laughs uh bob gibson knocked down somebody with a a, a pitch and he hit him deliberately <laughs> and it was because he didn't have the opportunity to, to, to get him back in the day and he brooded uh, about that for quite some
0: time <laughs> well that's fantastic that will be the first sports book on the um God's own scale. I um, think you'll um, like it. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Um, gentlemen, um, again, uh, I want to extend my heartfelt thanks for you uh, joining me. Um, I'm looking forward to whatever comes next for Little Wars TV. Um, I, I always refrain from asking because I, I want to be surprised. And I, I've seen the the uh, the trailer go up for what looks to be a Western gunfight or the OK Corral. Uh, Some people that That is the next episode. Yeah. Well,
3: the clubhouse is in a pretty rough neighborhood, John.
1: So. Uh,
0: yeah. uh, will we be seeing any cosplay uh, in that video? We've said too much already. Oh, okay. <laughs> You'd have to kill me if you told me. That. I, get I,
1: just, I know the code. Oh yes, yeah. there will be. There will be stupidity in costume. You're not. Ed makes a quite fetching (laughs) Slender.
2: Yeah, Ed reprises his role of Big Nose Kate.
1: (coughs) Um, It probably sounds wrong, but
0: I'm looking forward to it even more. (laughs)
1: That
0: should be great. Okay, gents. uh, Once again, thank you so much for your time, um, and uh,
1: I look forward to speaking to all three of you at some point in the near future.
4: Thanks, Sean.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's
5: a long way to go to the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Farewell, Lesto. Long,
0: long way to but my right Welcome back to Studio One here in the east wing of God's Own Scale Towers. I hope my enjoyment of that interview came over in the edit. It was a real joy for me to record with Tony, Miles and Ed. A couple of things before I go... Following this outro, you'll hear another short recording announcing the winners of the inaugural competition, so stick around for that if you entered. Long time listeners will have heard me banging on about how popular this podcast is in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Well, much to my surprise and pleasure, the mystery has finally been solved. So thank you to Chris for reaching out to me. He has been working in Goma for the last 18 months uh, and has now returned to the UK and he sent me a lovely message telling me how much he enjoyed the podcast uh, and listening out there in Goma Um, and it really is great. I'm really very pleased that uh, Chris has reached out to me and uh, solved the puzzle of why I was getting those downloads. I do suspect my listenership will now fall dramatically in the Congo, but you never know. If there's anybody else else out there, please get in touch. I'd love to talk to you. Hobby-wise, my Antietam project is nearing the finish line. Yes, it's nearly done. I'll post up some pictures in the usual places when it's finished, but I've literally a handful of bases to do before I can say it's project complete. Having said that, I'm awaiting one more pack of... Infantry from Bacchus to do the Iron Brigade, but everything I have as of now in my possession uh, will be done by the end of March. And to that end, I finally made a start on the War of Independence or Revolution project, keeping the American theme going. I've got four regiments of state militia done, uh, and my first unit of Continentals are complete. These are all Bacchus six mil. There's more to come from them very soon. The aim is to get the Yankees done before ordering the dastardly British. So let's hope my resolve holds out for that. Uh, The aim is to build the scenario for Guilford Courthouse from the Rue or Rus de Guerre set of rules that uh, Bacchus produced under their Polymos banner written by uh, Glenn Pearce. I'm really looking forward to uh, getting that onto the table. This episode is going up on Saturday, the 13th of March, 2021, and I am due to record again on Monday with a UK guest, with an outstanding blog, and a fabulous collection of six mil figures. He also games in a manner that I haven't covered previously, which may intrigue you. But I've had requests to talk about, uh, so keep listening uh, for that. That should be that may well be out within the next week or so. Um, I did talk about moving to a schedule of a podcast every three weeks, but I may just treat you and uh, get that out within the next 10 days, week to 10 days, I would say. As ever, thank you to everybody who takes the time to download the podcast. And thank you especially to those of you who have nominated God's Own Scale for the Caesar Award for Best Podcast. I am truly humbled. Um, I don't use that phrase lightly. I really am humbled uh, to be in such great company uh, with the uh, lardies, Oddcast, and the lovely Henry Hyde at Battle Chat of Battle Games Fame. And you can bet I'll be sat waiting nervously in my DJ, sipping a g and tea, practicing my best poker face for when the awards are announced on Oscar Weekend. So good luck to all of the other nominees, including Alex, I Alex at Storm of Steel, who's up for two awards. I'm really chuffed for you, mate, uh, for getting those uh, nominations, and and good luck to you. I'm sure you'll be doing the same as me, sat there in your DJ, sipping uh, your favourite cocktail, um, and practising your uh, acceptance speech. Uh, Well done. Well done to Little Wars TV, most of all, for putting on what promises to be a great show. I think it's a real great endeavour to Support and acknowledge, uh, the content creators out there, um, who put aside their own time to make content for people to watch and view and enjoy and read about. Uh, so it, it really is a feather in your cap for doing this. And I really do look forward to the show. Um, and especially the bloopers reel that no doubt will come afterwards, as I mentioned in the main show. So, uh, check out the Little Wars TV. Uh, channel on YouTube for some of the best video content out there um I think the o OK k Corral is the next uh on the list as again as mentioned within the main show so please do uh check them out another special thank you to my patrons who helped keep the lights on here at God's own scale towers. Every penny is greatly appreciated, especially in these hard times of Covid furloughs, lockdowns, etc should you wish to contribute to the Patreon, check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash God's Own Scale ok that's it for now don't forget to keep listening for the announcement of the winners of the competition in the short audio that will follow immediately after this intro but for now I've been Sean Clark this has been Episode 28 of the God's Own Scale podcast. Remember, stay safe, play nice, and keep talking
1: about six. Okay, you ready? Speaking to this. I am ready.
0: (laughs) Okay, I am joined by my wonderful, beautiful, talented (laughs) ten-year-old daughter, Ava. Who is going to make the draw for us? Just pop that down. Who's going to make the draw for us for the Christmas competition that we ran as part of God's Own Scale? Um, thank you for all the entries. Uh, I hope your name gets drawn out, but don't blame me if it doesn't. It will be Ava's fault, won't it? Now. (laughs) If your name doesn't get drawn out. But I'm going to give the names a good shake. I don't know if that can be picked up. Hopefully it can on the microphone. But there are two prizes. Hang on. Abra is very keen to get one of these names out and read it out aloud on the podcast. Um... So there are two prize, two prizes. One is for a six by four gaming mat, uh, from Tiny Wargaming, who very graciously, uh, donated, uh, that prize for us. And the other prize is for a gift voucher for £25 from Bacchus Miniatures. Thank you, Peter, for sponsoring, um, this inaugural competition on God's own scale. So. Here's the drum roll. Hang on. Hang on. This is for the Tiny Wargaming mat. And the winner is... Carl, Carl Hodgkinson.
1: Hodgkinson.
0: Carl Hodgkinson. Well done, Carl. And the second name out, and this is for the... Uh, voucher for £25 from Bacchus Miniatures, and the winner is, she's not even looking at the, num- at the names as she draws them out.
1: Richard
0: Hawkinson. Now, I, I will blame my handwriting for a poor pronunciation. My daughter can actually read. That's Richard Hampshire.
1: Hampshire. Richard
0: Hampshire. Say well done, Ava. Well done. <laughs> okay, so, um, I will be in touch with both of you, uh, via email. Uh, to let you know how you can uh, collect your prizes, but well done to Carl, and well done to Richard, and well done to everybody. It's the taking part, isn't it, that
1: counts? Yes!
0: (laughs) Okay, you can go now. Thank you. Can you shut
1: the door? Thank you.
5: With the smile on his lips and his left hand and fist upon his shoulder, bright and gay, as the train moved out, he sang, "Remember me to all the birds." Then he wagged his paw and went away, to all shouting out these pathetic words, "Goodbye, goodbye, oh I'm so dear baby dear from your eye." Though we far so far I know, I know. I'll be singing the deathly dole, don't cry, Don't I? There's a silver lining in the sky. Oh, my old tin cheerio, chin chin, now blue to blue, goodbye. At the coppers down at Q, the some copperheads dressed in blue. At to hear Lady Lee, who had turned eighty-three, sing all the old, old songs she knew. Then she made a speech and said, "I look upon you boys with pride, and for what you've done, I'm going to kiss each one." Then they all grabbed their sticks and cried, "Goodbye, goodbye!" Oh, as a dear baby dear from your eye though it's hard to part, I know, I know, I'll be because I best to go Don't cry Don't cry. There's a silver lining in the sky But my old thing Cheerio Cheeching blue Too blue Goodbye Little private Patrick saw He was the prisoner of war Till the hand with the gun Called his tea dog for fun Then Paddy punched him on the door Right across the barbed wire fence, the German drop said, dear, oh dear, All the wire gave away a rally yelled, hooray, as he ran for the Dutch frontier. Good night, good night, a wife's a dear, baby, from your eyes. Though it's hard, too hard, I, I know, know, I know, I see, Nicholas is a golden cry.
1: There's a silver lining
0: in the sky, but my whole thing's here to go, 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 i've i've go, 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 I've, I've suddenly found, I don't know why this has happened, fans this love of baseball, but uh, I'm looking forward to the new season. Has anybody got any tips for the coming season?
3: Too early for me to say. I, I, the preseason stuff, I don't
1: know. But I
3: do want to say, when you come over here for your Gettysburg trip, you and I are certainly going to see a game.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> well, that, that would be an absolute dream. That would be a dream.
1: Oh, yeah, what go well, yeah. I
3: mean, you can see anything. I, I enjoy watching the, uh, the the community games around here. That that's where you get the the, the best uh, jawing with the uh, fans and the umpires. Yeah,
4: the, the minor league games are the
3: most fun. Uh, right. Canyon yeah. Yards
4: is a pretty good place to go.
3: Yeah. It's
0: absolutely it's wonderful. I mean, yeah, you should, we should do it all. Have you got a local minor league team around where you are? Or yeah, 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 we do.
2: Yeah. I well, we used to go to those games and sit right behind the home team dugout.
0: I bet you heard a few choice words in there, didn't you?
2: Yes. Yes, some <laughs> of them in English, too. Um, <laughs> yeah.
0: Most Anglo-Saxon, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. well, well, baseball
4: I'm, truly is the greatest sport. i, I got to get that in there.
1: It yeah. is the greatest
4: sport. It is the greatest sport to paint by. damn Because really nothing happens, so it doesn't disturb
1: your family. Oh, ouch, ouch.
4: That is so
3: untrue. (laughs) Baseball is like church. Many attend, but few understand.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The thing with baseball is that, and Ed, I think you'll agree with me here, uh, unlike football or some other sports where you know at some point you've played your last game, baseball is one of those sports where. You're never you're never quite convinced that you don't have one more game in you. Um,
3: you can't kill the it's 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 one of those sports where you can't kill the clock by just running a couple of plays up the middle. Yep, you have to throw the ball over the plate and give the other man his chance. It it really isn't over till it's over. I'm, Doesn't often happen, but I, I, God knows I've thrown an eight run lead in the uh, last inning, and uh, sometimes it, it works the other way too.
2: I, I'm an old guy now, but you know if you said, hey. Let's get some guys together and play a game. I'm not telling myself I can't. If you told me, let's get some guys together and play football, yeah, not so much, Ed. But (laughs) if you said, hey, we're going to get some guys together and we're going to bat the ball around a little bit, I'm grabbing my glove and a hat.
3: Well, I'm pushing 60. I'll play pitch and catch with my grandson. That's about it. (laughs) Ed, you're going to pinch
0: run for me. I know what that means. I've, 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 Go ahead. I
2: just <laughs> just don't bring up the designated hitter. Whoops.
3: <laughs> no, I'm cool with that now. I, I, I fought that since 1973, but you know what? It's almost 40 years. Uh, I'm kind of on board with it now. Sean,
4: <laughs> it, it, normally when you mention DH, there's just a string of explicatives that just emerge. From that. It's almost it's like a tourette. It's uncontrollable. So, okay, I'll have anything
0: to do with baseball. <laughs> Okay then, explain this to me. Explain this, and whether this makes it into the podcast or not, I don't know. But I'm go- I'm going to go with it anyway. Why does one league have D- a DH and the other league doesn't? What's the, What's the background on that?
3: Well, the the two leagues have have always hated each other. Um, that, that's, I, I think that's the bottom line. <laughs> the National League always thought they were better than the American League. and They are. I'm an American League
4: guy.
1: I don't know where the rest of the guys are. Guys.
4: Is,
1: is that, that, have, I'm a National League like guy. It's that. people have bad over the years.
0: Do you have preferences for whichever league you enjoy?
1: Well, it,
0: yeah, I,
3: the, the offensive power comes with the D.H. rule, and, and people like to see home runs.
4: Yeah. I think also it's whatever you're, what you choose your hometown team. Um, sure. And, and, and whatever league they're in, that tends to kind of bias you. So,
3: I picked the New York Yankees. And, and before you jump on me there, in the late 1960s and early 70s, the Yankees were pretty terrible. Yeah. So,
1: yes.
0: That sounds a bit like um, an Englishman sporting Manchester United in soccer over here. Like Go right.
1: <laughs> Yeah.
0: But I, I've got relatives in um, in Chicago. Uh, well, I say relatives, though. Yeah, they're probably dead now. Um, it's, it's a, it was a long time ago. A great auntie uh, lived over there, so I'd always sort of um, gravitated towards the Chicago teams. Mm-hmm.
1: The,
0: uh, the Cubs were
1: the one that uh, I
0: have sort of dived into, but I'm I'm brand new at this sport, and there's a whole language, isn't there, around baseball?
1: Oh, but What yeah. I do like
0: about it is the history, the his- because it ties into my interest in history. The history of the game is just fascinating. Yes, I love it. Um, we you, Ed, you mean you will have to have a, a further discussion on baseball at some point.
3: I look forward to it,
0: Sean. You can because I'm actually and I'm, i think I might have mentioned this Miles in the um email. I'm I'm going to start a little side project of a YouTube channel uh looking at baseball from from a British perspective. Because it's such a,
4: a Good have it? Habit. <laughs> good uh, habit. I, um, I think we should do a six millimeter scale baseball game.
0: Oh, there you no. go. There you
2: go. Paint up teams. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, there's a, there's a whole industry around uh, tabletop um, uh, sims of uh, baseball with a game called Stratomatic. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and, and a host of others, actually. APBA. Yeah. Pine Tower is one that I've, uh, I've uh, been following on YouTube. So uh, get your gaming where you can. That's what I say. Hmm. <laughs> I can't get Stratomatic though. I, I did look at uh, seeing if we could get it shipped over here, and it an absolute arm and a leg. And there's no European distributor, so uh, it's uh, it's very difficult to get a hold of over here. Uh, but that's a whole different story. And a six mm. mil uh, baseball game. Now that that's uh, now you're talking. I need to get Peter onto
1: that and see if he can sculpt me some. Baseball,
0: oh,
3: my goodness. I completely forgot about this. Uh, years ago, I, I had a neighbor who played APBA, and he had built out of matchsticks um, the old Scheib Park in Philadelphia. And it would have been about six mil, come to think of. <laughs> and before every game, he would play the national anthem on a cassette
1: player. <laughs> <laughs>
3: and I used to laugh at that. And again, Teresa, my wife would say, Well, you know, what you're doing
1: is the exact same thing. Exactly. Yeah, we think we're sapling military three soldiers.